The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. My view is that even if these cards and indeed even the user controls, which allow people in, in effect to curate their own their own feeds, even if they're not, they're not used by the majority of users, it is still tremendously important in my view that you know big private sector companies like Meta are, are expected to explain themselves and explain their technology more fully. I'm Quinta Jurassic, a senior editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast. June 29th, 2023. Today, we're bringing you an episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the information ecosystem. How much transparency do big technology companies owe to the public? The question has become pointed in recent years, as users, researchers, and politicians have voiced discontent about the absence of public information available about how platforms moderate and amplify content. Today, Meta's President of Global Affairs, Nick Clegg, announced a new initiative to provide more information about how the company's ranking algorithms work on Facebook and Instagram. Along with my fellow Lawfare senior editor, Alan Rosenstein, I talked with Clegg about how Meta has approached transparency for both users and researchers. We also discussed Clegg's controversial 2021 essay on how Meta's algorithms interact with user preferences. One note before we begin. Meta provides support for Lawfare's digital social contract paper series. This podcast episode isn't part of that series, and Meta does not have any editorial role in Lawfare. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 29th. Talking transparency with Meta's Nick Clegg. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You're here to talk about a transparency initiative that Meta is rolling out around its algorithmic ranking systems for Instagram and for Facebook. Can you just start by telling us a bit about what you're announcing? Yeah. So for anyone who uses social media will know it, the process by which things are ranked on your feed, what do you see and in what order, is pretty opaque to people. And there's a lot of debate around, you know, is the algorithm completely in charge? You know, what kind of agency do you have as a human being? The, the, the truth, of course, is as I as I wrote in a in an essay a couple of years ago, trying to unpack all of this, it's a kind of interaction really between choices you make and then how the automated systems, these AI systems and the algorithms respond to those choices to try and ensure that what you see, because in a sense you're 
you know, you're dealing with a pretty simple problem to describe, but a but but harder to actually solve in practice. Which is there's an infinite amount of stuff that people can see uh, on their social media feed, but there's only a limited amount of time that people spend scrolling when they're you know waiting for the bus or in the in the queue in the, the line for the for the for the supermarket and so on. And so deciding what comes in what order is tremendously important. And certainly in the last four or so years that I've been at the company, I've been trying to sort of strip away a little bit of the kind of mythology around this and make the way in which that interaction between users and how these automated systems work more and more transparent and give users, of course, more control so that people don't feel they're just being subject to some opaque machine over which they've got no control. And so the latest iteration in that, which is something that I'm highlighting this week, is that we are publishing... Um, and they're sort of industry-leading things. I hope they become the norm across the industry. They're, we're publishing things called system cards. We're publishing 22 of them, and they literally list in a in a way that I hope is relatively readable and easy and digestible for the non-expert the signals that are used to determine what you see in what what order, so that people have a safe, wholesome, enjoyable, uh, rewarding time when they use Instagram and Facebook. And uh, these system cards are the first time where we've tried to publish all the different signals that are used from the time of day, the device you're using, whether you prefer looking at photos or videos, what stuff have you commented on, shared, you know, posted and, and, and so on. So that so that's sort of that's one thing we're doing. And then for the more specialized expert audiences, we're also publishing um, much more in-depth descriptions on how the so-called AI recommender systems work. This is when content is recommended to you, even though you're not necessarily connected to it through your friends and your family. And a separate sort of page in our in our in our transparency center, which describes in more precise detail the the if you like the kind of different um, weights attached to different forms of algorithmic prediction when it comes to content which which is as they call it in the jargon connected through your families and friends because it's in broadly speaking on on Facebook and Instagram you got I mean the bulk of content is in some way or another connected to what you have you know choices you've made friends you friends you have groups you're part of content you've engaged with and so on and then there's also content which is just recommended to you from you know across the internet and we're trying to make both those silos if you like more comprehensible to the expert audience whilst at the same time publishing these uh, system cards for everything like you know from reels to stories to marketplace so you can exactly see how the engineers build the algorithmic systems I, my hope in all of this is that people feel a little bit more yeah, a little bit more in control of their experience because at the same time we're rolling out a bunch of extra controls so that you can actually, if you want to, you can override the algorithm. You can see your feed in chronological order. You can decide what you're interested in, what you're not interested in. You can we're going to make it more prominent a control where you can say, "I want to see more of this or less of that." So transparency and user controls, if you like, are are two sort of sides of the same coin, and they're the they're the subject of the announcements we're making this week. The cards are, are quite impressive just in the clarity with which they describe the signals that go into these decisions. But I am curious about you know what you're hoping to 
achieve in publishing them, especially with respect to ordinary users, and especially, as you mentioned, and having them feel more comfortable and more in control. And the reason I ask is because, you know, I was I was reading these cards, it struck me that the sort of information on them, it was not, at least to my perspective, terribly surprising, um, which is good, right? It would be concerning if it turns out that Meta was also reading my brainwaves and I didn't realize that at the time. We're not. We're not, just to be clear. <laughs> not yet, at least. Um, and and that the, the 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 sorts of people, right, that that cover this and, and think about it a lot are probably not going to find this too surprising. But then on the, on the other hand, the ordinary users for whom yeah. this would be really new information might not honestly be that concerned, right? They're very busy people. They use these products much more just as you know consumers. And so what is your theory, I guess, as to yeah. um, how you think this will really affect how the you know ordinary billions of users of these products interact with them? Yeah, no, I, it's, a, it's a very astute question because it's always the argument, isn't it? When people try and devise new ways of sort of lifting the veil on these different sort of these sort of hitherto opaque technologies which is of course billions of people are not necessarily going to look at these system cards as you say they just they use facebook and instagram as they're going about their everyday lives and they've got many more important things to worry about and so on my view is that even if these cards and indeed, even the user controls, which allow people in, in effect to curate their own their own feeds, even if they're not, they're not used by the majority of users, it is still tremendously important, in my view, that you know big private sector companies like Meta are are expected to explain themselves and explain their technology more fully. Firstly, because there is a minority of people who are interested in these things and do want to understand what they're consuming and why they're seeing what they're seeing in the order in which they're seeing it. Secondly, because the agency that this gives users, I think, is tremendously important to ensure that some of the slightly more breathless critique of, of, of social media, which have in recent years almost suggested that 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 that, that people who use social media are completely helpless and uh, and somehow merely play things for, for algorithmic systems. I think it is important that, that that is shown not to be the case. And then, you know, particularly as we move towards or, or deeper, if you like, into the kind of AI era, and as generative AI has, as, as we've all seen, you know, erupted in significance recently and will become ever more prevalent in the way in which people interact with the online world in the years and decades to come. I actually think it's pretty important that expectations are set at the earliest stage possible that that transparency and with it accountability they are close cousins you can't hold big private sector companies accountable unless there's transparency you, you know should be built into the technology as it is evolving it's it's one of the reasons i mean this is a bit of a swerve but it's a i think a, a relevant one it's why this whole debate about whether the industry that is investing so heavily in these new AI systems, you know, whether it's OpenAI or Anthropic or DeepMind or Meta and so on, I think there's this really interesting debate about whether that technology, as it's being pioneered, should be open sourced so that everyone can have a look at it, everyone can stress test it, everyone can research it, or whether it should be kept under sort of lock and key, under sort of proprietorial systems. I happen to think the former is definitely the best way to way to go. And that's in keeping with what we're doing in this particular instance, which is the more these powerful technologies are deployed and the more that they will affect the way that we inhabit the online world in the years to come, the more important it will be that people feel that they know what they're dealing with. Even if, Alan, 
they don't themselves don't pour over the details of the transparency. I mean, I, I don't want to sound glib about this. I, I sometimes think it's as important that people know that they can look into this as it is, you know, the fact whether they do look in, into it themselves or not. So you've talked about your uh, 2021 essay, which if, if listeners want to uh, look it up, is called You and the Algorithm, It Takes Two to Tango, it's on Medium. Um, and you hit on a point just now that you make in the essay about the role of user agency in what you see on, on Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, and the sort of user's role in interacting with the algorithm um, and their experience of the of the platform. Um, and now we're talking about sort of what role transparency plays in that. So to go back to your essay, I think I sort of read it as uh, in in one light, perhaps making the argument that you know algorithms alone aren't responsible for negative experiences online, potential harmful societal effects uh, that may derive from social media because they're interacting with what people engage with um, and signals about what people want to click on. And there's a lot of truth to that. But at the same time, uh, that essay got a lot of criticism from journalists, researchers, academics, who read it as essentially blaming Meta's users for a lot of what people dislike about social media, rather than Meta taking more responsibility as a platform, given that, you know, you do decide as you, you know, set out in these system cards, what is ranked and how to some extent. So I'm curious in the intervening years since that essay, how, if at all, your thinking has changed in response to that critique? Well, I think if you are someone who believes in a high level of determinism, by which I mean a high, high level of determinism in, in terms of how human beings respond to technology, and you believe that many events, sometimes very untoward events, events you know you don't like, uh, whether it's an election outcome you don't like or a referendum outcome you don't like, or or patterns of societal stress and unhappiness. If if your sort of foundational perspective is that technology is the determining factor by which human beings then think, feel, interact with each other, then of course you're not going to welcome an argument which says, well, actually, it's a little more complicated than that. You know, human beings are not just sort of helpless um, receptacles for automated decisions. It is, it is a, it is a much more nuanced interaction between what human beings do uh, and how automated systems operate. And I, yeah, I have to confess. I understand that for those who want to keep insisting that it's, you know, the, and I'm being a little facetious here, you know, the machines are in control and it's all the fault of the people who've run these machines. And th then, of course, I understand that they're not going to welcome a nuanced argument that says, well, actually, the evidence is not that clear. You know, it's 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 not, for instance, that clear that, uh, I don't know, that uh, political or societal polarization in the US was causally created by the advent of social media. In fact, in many respects, it increased most sharply before social media even it was even invented, or, you know, that much repeated critique that using social media sucks people into rabbit holes and filter bubbles. Actually, all the research, most of the research suggests there's very little evidence to that for that indeed. But by the way, for pretty logical reasons, which is that if you think about the fact that you've got, I don't know, whatever it is, 100, 200 friends on Facebook, many of the people that, that one associates with on Facebook are people who've got very different ideological views to you. A cantankerous cousin or uncle who's got you know political views that are very different to yours. The, you know, the, the 
someone who, who you were very close to at, at high school, who's now you know go off on a different ideological direction. So in fact, you get a much more diverse mix of ideological content on your newsfeed generally than you would on a highly partisan cable, you know, TV news outlet, or or, or in my country, a, a highly partisan tabloid newspaper. The, the point I'm simply trying to make is, I, no, I haven't in the intervening years at all resiled from my view that what was often lacking in this debate was just a level of nuance and complexity. It, 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 and, and, I, and the reason I feel strongly about this is because I think it's almost, it's sort of willfully simplistic to say that people have no agency and are simply responding passively and often sort of without any sense of judgment or discretion to the, the way in which they interact in the online world. And, and it's important this because personalization, which is clearly something which lies behind a lot of these technologies where you're trying to personally provide, you know, almost like an individual fingerprint, a feed in, you know, Facebook, which, which, which reflects someone's interests, friendships, their lives. Personalization, you know, it's not it's not just been invented by Facebook. Every time you use Netflix, there is personalization. You get a bunch of recommendations about the kind of films you might want to see. Every time you go on Amazon, every time you go on search on Google, it it, it, it is the great phenomenon of our online lives in recent years has been the ability for technologies to personalize your your online habits and habitat in a way that previously was not the case. And I think that's going to accelerate going forward with generative AI. And I just don't, I don't think it helps any of us to deal with the downsides because there are always downsides with technology or to deal with the dilemmas around speech, around misinformation, around democracy and so on to, in my view, indulge in what is basically a bit of a caricature and a caricature for which there's very little evidence. And the caricature is that somehow we are almost unthinking receptacles for algorithmically spoon-fed content, which we just kind of, you know, haplessly digest and then, and then you know, repeat to others. I, I, I also find it a somewhat pessimistic and at times almost somewhat condescending view of the human being. I kind of think most human beings I meet are just a whole lot more complicated than that and a whole lot and often much more capable of taking a huge amount of input every day, every hour, every day from a whole bunch of different sources, from TikTok, from Instagram, from Facebook, from the newspaper, from the television, from the radio, from your friends, from your neighbors, from your children, from your cousins, from your, you know, it's that's how we live as human beings. We are constantly taking an input from lots of different directions. We don't just sit there glued to our Facebook feed and just simply in a sort of bovine way, repeat what we have been, what we have seen on our feed. Life thankfully is a lot more multifaceted than that. Life thankfully is not just what people see on their so social media feed. So I, I accept that for those who want to, as I say, depict the interaction between technology and human beings in this highly deterministic way, in which the machines are entirely in charge and human beings have got no agency, I can understand that that essay was not something they'd want to accept. I remain actually even more firmly of the view of the last two years that all the evidence suggests that there is a level of nuance there that I think was sometimes missed in the more polemical debates around the purported effects of social media on society. 
So I want to push back a little bit there, and I do want to make sure that we talk a little more about the specifics of the transparency programs, but just to dwell on this for a second, I mean, a lot of the folks who I saw making this criticism of the essay that you put together were not actually people making the argument that, you know, the the machine is in control and, you know, human beings are uh, only, you know, passengers on whatever it's it's doing. There's our folks who are actually, were people who were arguing for nuance um, and felt that it was extremely important to acknowledge that, you know, this is not uh, purely deterministic, that there is an interaction between uh, signals and algorithms, that, you know, social problems are complex, that Meta's role is not, you know, the the big bad, that uh, the idea of a filter bubble has largely been debunked. You know, these these are people who would agree with all of those statements and still felt that perhaps you were shifting blame a little bit to the user. And, and to get to that, I want to say, you know, if you listening to what you just said, one takeaway might be, you know, well, meta meta is some kind of neutral platform upon which we project, you know, we project our desires. And yet that's not what you're saying. And you say in your essay, you know, you talk about how, uh, and I'll just quote here, Facebook is in the relatively early stages of exploring whether and how to rank some important categories of content differently, like news, politics, or health. And so there you're saying, you know, we we do accept, we govern what's on our platform, we make decisions about what people see and how they see it. Um, and so, you know, the machine may not be in control, but Meta has certainly a certain degree of control over how these algorithms are shaped. Yeah, I, I have to confess, I struggle to understand this argument intellectually. I just don't genuinely don't understand why anyone th- should think it's irreconcilable to say that there is a interesting and complex interaction between human choices and automated systems, whilst at the same time, of course, acknowledging that the companies that design the automated systems, in this case, Meta, have a very heavy responsibility. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't now now be talking to you about publishing 22 actually industry-leading system cards, which, which, which really try and lift the veil precisely on our side of the bargain. But I, I, I don't, I just, yeah, I've, I'm really struggled to understand why accepting there is a relationship, as in the, as per the title, takes two to tango, somehow is in any way an attempt on my part to disavow any responsibility for our side of the bargain. I mean, if anything, I actually think it it almost amplifies our responsibility because I'm seeking to explain that there is this interaction, therefore, and, and as you quite rightly pointed out, as I put in that article, and as I'm telling you again now, I kind of like how, therefore, how we design those systems and as they interact with human choice yeah, carries a, a grave responsibility and one which I think should be subject to more and more transparency and accountability, which is precisely why we're now moving to the sort of next generation of system cards and next generation of user controls. So I, look, I, I, I may be missing something. And of course, I don't know which particular critics you have in mind. And there is, there is, it is, I, I mean, I come from a world of politics, so I've, I'm used to being in an environment where it doesn't matter what you say, you'll always get uh, people taking sort of pot shots at your argument from, from, from all directions. But I've, I have to say that argument that somehow I was trying to absolve meta of responsibility, A, is confounded by what I wrote in that essay, and B, actually genuinely seems a bit bizarre to me. It's like if you, 
if you say that there is a interaction, you're almost kind of highlighting the fact that that that, that you have that you have to be transparent and accountable and responsible in how you discharge your side of that bargain. And 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 if anything, I was kind of trying to. I was trying to explain how I regard our responsibility, which is precisely why I believe we're now doing more than anywhere else in the industry with these system cards in trying to be ever more transparent about how we discharge our side of the bargain. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So let's go back to the to the system cards and, and what you're disclosing as, as part of them. And in particular, you mentioned earlier that in addition to the sort of user-facing system cards, you're also releasing a lot of information to the sort of more expert crowd that will go into, into the, the details on, on how these um, algorithms uh, actually work. And so I'm curious, what to you is the limit of how transparent you're willing to be on on those details? So I, I'm sure you're aware that a few months ago, Twitter decided to take its source code, literally the Scala code that, that runs its algorithm and put it on GitHub. And you can even find a variable um, that says author is Elon that apparently hard codes a bump for Elon Musk tweets. I, I assume that there's not a similar thing for uh, Zuckerberg's uh, <laughs> posts on Facebook, though, you know, who knows? I mean, you can always do that, right? There's, there's yeah. always that that extreme. More generally, of course, there's this question of providing kind of production data to researchers, and um, you know whether Meta's uh, investment in platforms like um, CrowdTangle, which has been a very useful tool, um, though there has been some reporting from last year that Meta was kind of reconsidering how much to support it. You know how much Meta wants to continue there. So I just love to hear about how detailed and granular you're willing to get in terms of you know, disclosing what is the, in a sense, the whole product of, of Meta, which is the secret sauce that goes into the ranking algorithms. Yeah. Um, well, let me get, answer that um, in, in two ways, if I, if I may, which is, first, I think we're, we're being, in a sense, quite open and unapologetic about the fact that the system cards are an attempt to produce something, as we discussed earlier, Alan, in a way that is digestible and comprehensible to the non-expert. As I say, for those who want to go deeper, I think the the, the page on our transparency center in terms of how connected content works has has got, for instance, some quite interesting insights that we've never revealed before about the relative weights of the predictions, because so much of these systems are based on predictions, which in turn are fed by a multitude of signals. And the, if you like, the hierarchy of 
predictions uh, which we've enumerated there. I think I, I sorry, I don't have in front of me. I think it's kind of you know regularly used predictions, less regularly used, and infrequently used predictions is is our early attempt to try and provide some insight into the different weighting given to different predictions because that's a really really fundamental kind of architectural uh, aspect to to how our systems at work but separately i and i i i mean i basically accept i think your your challenge which is particularly for researchers we could do better we we could do better and provide more tools to uh, give reach researchers meaningful access to, to 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 data and one of the things that i'm also announcing this week is that we are starting to unveil and we're doing it in sort of beta form at the moment and kind of trialing it with a number of researchers as of this week we're going to unveil two new researcher tools one's a sort of called content library and the, and the other one is, the, um, is, is, an, is an api and this will provide at least by our standards unprecedented access to vetted researchers to 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 data including by the way far more granular data than is available for instance on um on crowdtangle you mentioned you know crowdtangle doesn't include it, and this is not a academic way i put it, it doesn't include eyeballs doesn't include how many people are actually seeing seeing content and we're working in the first instance, with the um, Inter-University Consortium for Political and Social Research. It's a partnership via the University of Michigan to onboard some, you know, the first generation of vetted researchers to have access to what will be by by a long a long measure, by by some measure, the most sophisticated tools that we can give to to researchers on on our on the data on our services. So Look, it's an incremental process. I, d- I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to pretend that's going to be available to everybody overnight. It's not. We're trying to do this in steps. We're trying to get feedback from the research community, li- literally in the weeks to come. But I, you know, I, I, I hope by you know the fall winter of this year, we'll we'll look back on innovations like that and think, wow, that's actually a. They collectively make a significant step change in terms of both how the non-expert and the expert research audience can can hold us to account and scrutinize what's going on on our, on, on our services. So let, let's zoom out a little bit from the the transparency point uh, and talk about some more general policy issues. And one thing I wanted to ask you about, since you've mentioned it a few times in this conversation, is about not just giving users transparency, but giving users choice. And one of the big ways that you could give users choice is by letting them choose their ranking algorithm or letting them tweak the algorithm that is used for, for them. And obviously, there are many ways of doing this. For what it's worth, I personally think this is a, a brilliant idea. I think it would make things better for the users. I think it would lower the temperature a lot on the content moderation debates because people could have more choice in, in what they see. But it does seem to me that there's a potentially big downside for a company, whether Meta or anyone else that tries this, which is that um, since for you know over a decade or you know almost 20 years now, these algorithms have been fine-tuned to maximize engagement, letting users choose to have less you know, potentially engaging content on their platforms because uh, they would like their blood pressure to go down when they open their their newsfeed uh, might lead to less engagement on the site, might lead to lower profits for for Meta. Um, you know, in in your essay from a few years ago, you actually noted that some of the changes that you have made recently that the platform has made in, in downranking certain kinds of content um, have lowered 
you know, the number of hours spent and therefore, you know, lower the, the market cap and you were okay with that. And so I just wanted to ask, you know, are, are you still okay with making these sorts of changes that might also lower the amount of user engagement, which is, I do expect to be one of the effects of providing users with more algorithmic choice. I mean, the answer is yes, uh, but I'm not sure if your assumption that it leads to less enjoyment and uh, is really, or unless people using the, the services and continue to use them is necessarily right. Because I would have thought, because the, the controls are, I mean, Facebook, you literally just go to the feed tab and you can you can curate your own feed now by selecting, you know, favorites. You can, I mean, you could have done this for quite a while now. You can literally just override the algorithm and, you know, see it chron- chronologically. Now we've introduced actually over the last month or two, some quite significant new controls over sensitive content. So if you want, for instance, if you don't want content that has been fact-checked with a very big full screen you know, filter over it, uh, and you don't want that demoted as aggressively as it was before, you can you can choose that. There are other sensitive categories of content that you can either see more of or less of. In other words, you can alter the default demotion rates that, that, that the company uh, applies. You can choose not to see ads. You can, you know, the, the, the control of show more, show less, which you can get by going to those three little dots. Uh, we're going to seek to make those that more prominent. I intuitively, but I, I, I confess, I, I don't really have any data to sort of throw at my intuition here. But my intuitively kind of think that if for people who want to avail themselves of those controls, it's really important that they should have them, you know, easily available to them. Because if you, you know, if you're if you're that way inclined, if you feel you can't pull those levers, I suspect you might be disinclined to continue to use the service because you kind of feel you're not shaping it around your around your around your interests. So I'm not sure if they're irreconcilable. And, and more than that, and you alluded to this. Um, when the company made this significant shift to, towards what was called in the jargon, meaningful social interaction. In other words, sort of stripping out from the platform a lot of stuff that was just provoking a lot of engagement, but wasn't really related to people's you know, fundamental enjoyment of being connected with family and friends. There was an absolute collapse in the amount of kind of content that was being, or time that was being spent. In fact, there was a huge collapse in the company's share price at the time as well, which of course that does happen with uh, with with these um, these company valuations over time. But I think in the long run, the calculation then and the calculation now is that we're not trying to build a service which just sort of just you know constantly hooks people to keep sort of doom scrolling we're trying to ensure that people will use this not just over the next 10 minutes but over the next 10 years because they find it a rewarding enriching useful and enjoyable experience and i think i think that's the philosophy that continues here and and, by, and i don't want to make this sound like you know we're not we're not acting out of pure altruism here. I mean, it's also, you know, we're a company, we're a business. And we, we, it's also driven by self-interest. In the long run, if you want to build a sustainable business, you want to make sure that your product is enjoyable over time and not just not just trying to, you know, keep people hooked for an extra few seconds or minutes at, at, at any cost. By the way, it's a small technical point, but I should, it's one which I attach a lot of significance to. It's the, it's the reason why our teams... Um, rely more and more on what I'd call slow time feedback via surveys. Because you get a very different response from people about how they feel about using social media in the moment. 
to how they feel an hour or two later. And we deliberately construct these surveys so that you get both. And you often get really different responses. So, you know, I, I recognize this myself. You must do as well. Sometimes, you know, you, you like, you go, oh, why have I spent so much time scrolling on this stuff? Or why have I spent so much time looking at this useless television program? Or why have I spent so much time reading this irritating newspaper? And we, we all waste time on things. And we just kind of, and then later we go, oh, got to remember next time to spend more time on this bit of content or less time there. And and we 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 are incorporating those surveys more and more into the way in which we design our systems as reflected in those uh, in, in those system uh, system cards um and i think that's a good thing because you just get a much more rounded input from 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 users about what they find useful over the long run so speaking of how Meta understands itself as a business, there's been a great deal of reporting recently about big technology companies, including Meta, rolling back some of their investments in trust and safety capabilities on their platforms as part of a larger you know, tightening of the belt that's happening right now um, in Silicon Valley. And we wanted to ask you about that in relation to this conversation we're having about algorithms and transparency. And in, in relation to some recent reporting uh, by the Stanford Internet Observatory and the Wall Street Journal about how Instagram's recommendation algorithm uh, helped essentially build networks of accounts sharing and producing child sexual abuse material. So I wanted to ask what kind of investments Meta is making in building user safety into these recommendation systems and how users can be assured that those investments are not going to be a casualty of spending cuts at the company. So, so firstly, the, the 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 issue that was exposed in the report that, that you allude to, we've been quite open about that. We've set up a whole task force to look in this. We we definitely definitely came across some technical issues that where our systems were not working. So, for instance, um, uh, there was this sort of glitch that unexpectedly prevented certain user reports from reaching content reviewers, and we also realized we needed to provide sort of updated guidance to our content reviewers to more easily identify and remove these predatory accounts. And we move very quickly to restrict um, thousands of additional search terms and hashtags on, on Instagram. And and so I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to duck this, uh, that, that report, uh, we take it extremely seriously. Child exploitation is a horrific crime we are proud of our work here, but we equally, I hope, are big enough when reports like that reveal that you know certain things are not working as they should. That we that we're big enough to say, yeah, there were some gaps there, and we need to move to fix them, and we are fixing them. We have a very accomplished task force now uh, on this. I mean, just parenthetically, but um, parenthetically, it's really important to remember that what that report revealed was a number of accounts, some of them actually empty accounts, which were able to link. To connect with each other on Instagram, it, it wasn't about the circulation of child sex, sexual exploitation material. It wasn't about content. It was about accounts. Some of them actually redundant accounts, but predatory accounts, which would then often go to other services to actually exchange. But but that's just an explanation. It's certainly not. And we we and, and by the way, I mean our teams do. You know, is a very adversarial space. I think in in January of this year, we disabled almost a half a million accounts for violating our, our child safety uh, policies uh, in the in the couple of years between 2020 and 2022 we dismantled i think close to 30 of these 
very sophisticated networks uh, and we work across you know the industry and others but 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 to that report i think they did shine a spotlight on an area where i think we're now fixing it and we must do and we but none of that really is 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 related to a, a kind of resourcing issue i mean those technical glitches that i and, and those gaps that i talk about is is not because of a an absence of investment i mean we still have around 40,000 people uh, working on integrity issues generally and crucially and this i think comes to the spirit of your question we do feel that our advances in ai have hugely helped us in dealing with content that we don't want to see on our platform and i mean i'll give you i'll give you a very specific example um the prevalence of hate speech on facebook so in other words the percentage of hate speech as a percent as a proportion of the total amount of content on facebook is now down to 0.02 percent uh i think according to our latest we, we issue these transparency reports where we publish all the data on the kind of i think it's 21 categories of content from terrorism to hate speech to ip fraud and so on that we don't want on our platform so it's down to 0.02 so that means for every 10,000 bits of content you might see on facebook two bits of content would be hate speech but my point is that is down by over 50 percent over the last 18 24 months almost exclusively because of improvements in ai because as you know these ai systems are just extremely sophisticated pattern recognition systems so they are very very powerful tools in our armory of human and automated systems which try to constantly wage and and uh, uh, this 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 adversarial battle against you know ba- bad actors trying to post or share content uh, on our platforms that we don't we don't want and and again i mean back to our you know the theme of transparency alongside our financial reports every 12 weeks as i hinted at earlier we, we now publish all the data on the on whether it's hate speech, whether it's bullying, whether it's harassment and so on, under these different categories of content that that we don't want, that people don't want to experience. And we just publish very transparently the the, the prevalence of each. Are we doing better? Are we doing worse? Uh, how well are we doing on content that we identify before anyone reports it to us? And there are certain categories of content which, because of these AI systems, are all about recognizing you know, repeat content patterns, we've become exceptionally successful. So for instance, terrorist-related content, which was a very, very big and legitimate source of political and public concern a few years ago. I think I need to double check this, but I think over 99% of Daesh and ISIS-related terrorist content is now identified and removed by our systems before they're reported to us by any human being. So I hope that's a both, sorry, it's a long reply, but it's a very important issue. I hope that's both a response to that particular issue, but also the overall approach we take in this area. So that's a great segue to to what I want to close us out on, which is this question about AI, which of course has taken the world by storm and mm. sort of all we're talking about. And it's it's good to hear that that's a lot of what you've been thinking about as well. And, and I'm curious if you can talk you know, about what Meta's plans are generally when it comes to these large language models and generative AI, but also maybe specifically, and as relates to this conversation, how you think about the challenges that the use of these AI systems poses for transparency. Because of mm-hmm. course, one of the the great, I don't know if it's ironies or certainly difficulties, is that these 
systems operate certainly they operate somewhat like black boxes where it's very hard to look inside and really understand what yeah. part of the system is reacting to what part of the input and leading to what part of the output so whether or not it's a matter of let's say using these ais to do some of the filtering of csam and hate speech and making sure you're capturing the right stuff and capturing enough of the stuff or using the ai to do algorithmic ranking and trying to explain to the user more than just, well, the AI told us that you would mm. like this. How do you think about those challenges in, in integrating uh, AI into its pr into your products, as I'm sure you and, and mm. frankly, every other company is going to do in the next you know, 12 to 24 months? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, Alan, I think, you know, I think it's one of the biggest issues of our times because all of us and all of the future, all our kids and our grandkids, I mean, the generative AI technologies we're seeing emerge now will be they they will basically shape how we in how we interact with the online world for for for, for you know for generations to come. It it is it is a, it is in that sense a pretty transformational moment. I parenthetically for what what it's worth, I don't actually think the early debate about this, the sort of ethical and regulatory and public political debate, has been helped by you know immediately worrying about whether kind of robots with you know bright shiny red eyes are going to kind of all turn us into paper clips by next tuesday i don't think that's because that whole issue of super intelligence and supersized you know agi models may become an issue but it's not the issue we have here and now i think as you alluded to here and now you know if i take us as an example meta i think you're going to see you know you're going to see businesses using uh, ai powered chatbots on messenger and whatsapp to Kind of interact with you when you buy and sell stuff in a, in a highly personalized way. Um, you're going to have um, what's called co-pilots, or you know, literally, kind of you know AI assistants helping you book meetings, answer emails. Um, you know, deal with deal with kind of a lot of the humdrum parts of work that we don't want to. Our kids are going to be taught with you know generative AI tools. Um, clearly, medicine is being transformed as we um, as we speak. And your question is, how do we make sure that people feel comfortable with everything that's going on, if you like, under the, you know, under the lid? Um, well, my own hope is that is that relatively rapidly there will be a either a voluntary or possibly a regulatorily imposed expectation on the big companies that are investing in these AI systems to reveal as much as they can about how these systems have been built and how they've been trained. And, and you know, there's this whole issue of publishing model cards uh, with these AI systems. And 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 I think the detail is going to matter tremendously and the terminology is going to matter tremendously. So for instance, I've been talking to you about system cards. OpenAI, when they launched ChatGPT, published a system card, but it wasn't actually a system card in the way that we've configured. It was more like a sort of transparency report you've got new legislation coming on stream like the EU AI Act, which is setting clear expectations for transparency so that there is a sort of comprehensible account about the way in which these models have been constructed. And I very much hope that that, that we at Meta at least will take the kind of learnings that we have derived from this exercise, uh, system cards on our existing AI content ranking systems to the way in which we also provide transparency on our future models. And look, we, you know, we we've got quite an interesting pedigree in this area. In the over the last decade, Meta has open sourced over a thousand AI models and databases. 
there's a very interesting debate going on in the sort of tech sector and the regulatory environment about whether open sourcing is a good thing or a bad thing. I think as a general principle, we think it's a good thing because it allows for greater scrutiny, greater transparency, greater comprehension. It allows, I think, in the long run for better safety and integrity because it means that you you kind of get the wisdom of crowds and a lot of people innovating and stress testing and kind of like red teaming your 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 your, your models in real time rather than having these these very powerful models under proprietary lock and key where companies are basically entrusted to play sort of whack-a-mole against the kind of flaws that they themselves detect. So I, I, I hope that the general approach that we have pursued, very much through a research lens in, in recent years on our AI models and databases, is something that we can, can maintain even, even as we develop these more powerful generative AI systems. And that, at the end of the day, is the best guarantee, Alan, for the kind of thing that you're, I think, you're kind of pushing on, which is just give researchers and others and innovators and developers as much access to these models as you possibly can. Obviously, do so responsibly and safely, safely as you can. I think in the end, that's going to be the best guarantee that these things are properly scrutinized. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you both. Thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, a Lawfare podcast series on the information ecosystem. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. And your audio engineer this episode was Megan Nadolsky of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.